listen to you communists and and Jews. Tell all your buddies to spread the news. Today, uh, judgment will soon be nigh. As the Lord in his wisdom looks down from on high. Will his battle be lost by mixing the races? We want beautiful babies, not ones with brown faces. Never, never, never I say. For the Ku Klux Klan is here to stay. Hello, we're back. Welcome to Panastoria, where uh, if you didn't guess from the song that, you know, led us into this, we're talking about the clan today. Do, 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 Anyway, yeah, we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan in Canada, because believe it or not, they're in Canada land. Yeah, also, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah, sorry. I guess we skipped that part. Yeah, we're... We're just so excited to talk about people in hoods. We're so excited to talk to make fun of the clan, like because unlike how the the American version, uh, the Canada clan is actually really rather pathetic. <laughs> but also more sinister in some ways because in some they ways. Had, like also hilariously they were literally were called the Canada clan spelled with a K, like Canada and clan obviously spelled with a K, and some people actually did embroider maple leaves on their white hoods. Oh joy, but. And during the research for this, we kind of found out that they were, it was pretty pathetic. Yeah, it never really, it, it never reached the same level here that it, it did in the United States. But mm-hmm. I guess with that, we should just jump right in. Let's do it. We're going to have to jump all the way back to the end of the American Civil War. And even though it ended, it brought continued discontent among Southern Confederate sympathizers who were opposed to the idea of Reconstruction. And basically, in short, what Reconstruction was, was the literally reconstructing all of the former Confederate states to be reintegrated into the United States. So that means they had to basically restart their state constitutions from the ground up and change a lot of shit and literally rebuild a lot of the cities from the ground up and a lot of societal attitudes from the ground up so it was literally nation building from the ground up again (laughs) and there are still people out there bitter and sad and pathetic about it today Some of the states were still defiant and enacted what are known as black codes. In Louisiana, for example, the state Democratic Convention declared, quote, we were told this to be a government of white people made and to be perpetuated for the exclusive benefit of the white race and that the people of African descent cannot be considered as citizens in the United States, end quote. I'm surprised they didn't just come out straight out and say the N-word. Right. I mean... You're already being disgusting in your words. I mean, at least they didn't say it, but uh, anyway. The only state in the South that did not enact any sort of black code was North Carolina. Meanwhile, President Andrew Johnson made no attempt to block the enforcement of such codes because Andrew Johnson, even though he was a unionist, he was not a abolitionist in any way, shape, or form. He was very pro-slavery. Very much a Southern sympathizer, I would say, although he supported, he he just did not support the dissolution. The only reason why he was chosen as the vice president is because he was was a Southern Democrat and Lincoln thought that that would score him some points, which it kind of did. 
The codes were a major source of outrage in the North, and the Congress actively prevented new Southern senators from taking their seats out of protest against the Black Codes. So good on them. On Christmas Eve, 1865, six former Confederate officers gathered together in the town of Pulaski, Tennessee, where they established what is a, a Southern fraternal order based on the defunct Sons of Malta. This order was known as the Ku Klux Klan. Bunch of fucking losers. I, I tried looking this up. There is actually no, there's no source of why that's what they're called the Ku Klux Klux Klan. The most prominent one that I was able to find is that Ku Klux sounds like a, a gun being cocked. Yeah. But apparently that is not true. Yeah, there's like Behind the Bastards did a really good episode on the Klan and they he talked a little about, shout out to Robert Evans I guess. Uh, he he did a, they did an episode and he talked a bit about like the naming of it but pretty much chalked it up to just like so we're a bunch of like frat boys kind of yeah. and it sounded cool and sounded a little like you know scary and kind of was more about the alliteration and things like that than honestly anything else yeah and i think that's probably pretty valid based on the other names that they give things yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like i said they're a bunch of fucking losers yeah the initial intentions of the founders are disputed but what is known is that it inspired the founding of other clans throughout the south known as quote-unquote chapters and i'm saying quote-unquote because they were not in any way shape or form affiliated with one another they're just it's like oh that seems like a good idea we'll we'll start one too we'll just do it too yeah there's and there's no central authority to the first clan now the original ideology of the first clan were neo-confederatism which is basically Confederatism. Yeah. <laughs> white nationalism, white supremacy, and the establishment of a white-only sovereign state, also known as a white separatism. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't love white separatism. We don't no. love it. No. To be clear. Yeah. <laughs> well, the various clans took up many tactics to harass freedmen, which are, for those of you who don't know, are freed slaves who are now living Technically, technically free. free, yeah. <laughs> technically not enslaved, I guess yeah. is a better way to put it. Um, unfortunately, still rather impoverished. Not living well. No, honestly, it's kind of seeing the same shit today. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> watch, like, listen to our last episode to get our intake on that. Honestly, I think there's a lot of themes throughout this episode that will be very familiar. Oh yeah. <laughs> they would also harass northern leaders who came down south. To start, you know, taking over the industry and the government, I guess. And Southern Reconstruction advocates. I cannot remember the name of their what they were called. It was either Scallywags was a name for, uh, for certain, like they gave these people names. Oh, like yeah, there's Scallywags, um, stuff like that. It wasn't Yankee. I know that, but it was like Scallywags. And I should know this. If, um. Uh, Sean England, if you're watch, if you're listening to this, watching this, if you're listening to this, I apologize because I know you taught me <laughs> all of these terms at one point. <laughs> the story behind wearing the robes is supposedly so they would resemble ghosts, as African American people of African American descent at that time were seen as more superstitious. One known early tactic was for a Klansman and full Klan regalia. Which is, you know, a sheet over your head. Uh, would knock on the door of a house of a random in a random town and demand water. 
When water was offered from the well, the clansman would appear to drink the entire bucket of water, but in reality, he was pouring it down a rubber tube that filled a hidden bottle underneath his robe. When he was done the bucket, he would demand more and more and more. And then finally, when, when he was quote-unquote finished, he would declare he hadn't had anything to drink since he died at Shiloh and then would ride off into the night. This was meant to instill belief the town had been visited by the ghost of a fallen Confederate soldier. It was pretty effective, surprisingly. I mean, it is the, the mid-1800s. Definitely a lot more superstitions going around in that time, especially rural areas. But it was effective in like a psychological way. The clan really re relied heavily on psychological war, like terror. They like, oh, yeah. like psychological warfare. That's like what they did. Yeah. And this isn't, this is just, this is very tame. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is just like, just the theme of the clan in general is they rely on just kind of scare, they just want to, they mostly want to scare people because they understand that fear is powerful. Oh yeah, absolutely. They just wanted to get people out of the yeah. area. They wanted to get people, they wanted to get freedmen out of the area. They wanted to get northerners out of the area. They wanted to get uh, northern sympathizers out of the area, basically. Mm -hmm. Clansmen would also ride in posses, armed and patrolling the countryside, apparently looking for people <laughs> this brought back traumatic memories of slave patrols during the pre-war era where groups would roam in search of fleeing slaves where they would often capture these slaves and subject them to horrific punishments and even death soon clan chapters began randomly attacking freedmen in the streets with whips which soon caused violent clashes between an alliance of blacks southern unionists and northerners against these clansmen Despite the violent clashes, the clan were initially were usually mocked and ridiculed during their parades and public speeches. So just about, they would go on marches down the street and whatnot, and they just have a bunch of people shouting insults at them and being like, "You look silly." <laughs> By spring 1866, popularity of the radical Republicans increased as their rhetoric of a violent Southern insurgency were seemingly proven right. They won a massive majority in the congressional elections of 1866. In March 1867, Johnson attempted to veto the Reconstruction Acts, but was overridden by Congress and it was passed. This divided 10 out of the 11 southern states into military districts, replacing the state governors with military governors. The task of the districts was to sweep through reforms to establish citizenship to former slaves, increase voter registration for blacks, and push through elections for state constitutional conventions to rewrite the state constitutions and have them readmitted into the Union. In April 1867, Klan chapters began to actually coordinate together and sent representatives to Nashville where a ground meeting was held in order to determine the, a response to Reconstruction. It was decided at the convention more direct action would need to be taken along with more cooperation between the chapters. Throughout the summer and autumn of the same year, the Klan had grown in size with thousands joining out of opposition of Reconstruction. Clan tactics also became much more violent with the beginning of the so-called ghost rides. If you've seen Django Unchained, uh, that clan's bit at the beginning, that's a ghost ride. Pretty much any image of clansmen on horses riding around. Yeah. At night. <laughs> it's a pretty famous image, honestly. Oh, I think yeah. when you mention the clan, it's... people just think of that. Oh, yeah. The, the guy in the white robe riding around on a horse with a torch. Yeah. Large groups of armed Klansmen would now deliver threats to blacks and radicals, warning them to leave the area or face consequences. 
Individuals were often singled out for worse acts. People were viciously beaten, kidnapped, maimed, and even lynched. This caused alarm for the military governors and for the rest of the United States, as it had become clear an actual organized insurrection was occurring in the southern states. By the time the army was dispatched to suppress the Klan, too much time had passed and too much support for the Klan had grown. The Klan had managed to set up de facto governments throughout Tennessee, the Carolinas, and elsewhere. They operated what are known as shadow governments and counties beyond the control of state officials. So basically, they were in control of the counties, which is a terrifying thought. Mm. Yeah. Donald Trump's wet dream. Uh, Tennessee Governor William G. Brownlow attempted to have spies infiltrate the Klan, only to discover the efforts had failed because the Klan were well aware of the efforts. One spy was found nearly lynched in a tree with his feet barely touching the ground, which is an awful image to think about nearly hanging like that. Another was stripped naked and mutilated, and a third was drowned in the Cumberland River after he was rolled into the waters inside of a barrel. The growing support of the Klan resulted in Congress passing even stricter laws within the southern states so in reality the clan's tactics actually backfired on them and made things worse for them i would say by passing the enforcement acts of in 1870 and 1871 which granted protections for african americans rights to vote hold office serve on juries and be equally protected under the law furthermore the laws granted the federal government the right to intervene in states who did not abide by such acts President Ulysses Grant was hell-bent on suppressing the Klan as he was the former general of the army during the Civil War. And he sent more federal troops to deal with them and enforce the acts. He allowed them to do whatever means necessary to suppress the Klan. Many Klansmen were arrested and tried, often by all-black juries. Many of the Klan leaders were given jail time and soon the organizational structure collapsed. The Ku Klux Klan Act of, 18, of 1871 declared the KKK to be an illegal terrorist organization, with members facing jail sentences. As a result, many simply abandoned their ranks, and the first Klan soon dissolved afterwards. It was only a temporary dissolution. Yeah, yeah. So the Klan began to make a comeback. But important to the story of the Klan is the first blockbuster Hollywood film, really. The landmark silent film, The Birth of a Nation probably heard of this but the film was the longest and most pro profitable film then ever produced and also the most creatively and artistically advanced of its day the film is important in the history of filmmaking as it helped to secure the future of feature-length films and also improved the reception of film as a serious artistic medium so unfortunately this film is extremely important for numerous reasons and we have it to thank for a lot of things yeah, unfortunately, that's but the, thing with the content is less than lovely so the film is important to what we are talking about here because while it is hailed for its technical and dramatic innovations, as I said, it is also brutally racist. The film is based on the novel The Klansman by Thomas Dixon. In the novel, the two-part epic traces the impact of the Civil War on two families, the Stonemans of the North and the Camerons of the South, with each family on opposing sides of the conflict. The first half of the film is set from the outbreak of the war through the assassination of President Lincoln, with the second half dealing with the chaotic Reconstruction period, which Jenna described. The director, D.W. Griffith, revolutionized the, art of, the young art of movie making with his big budget of $110,000 and artistically ambitious recreation, or recreations of the Civil War years. 
Filming began in secrecy in July 1914, and even though a script did exist, Griffith kept most of the continuity in his head. This is actually kind of remarkable considering that there were 1,544 separate shots in the completed film at a time, when the most elaborate films had ever er, had usually fewer than 100. Damn. It's pretty remarkable that he actually kept all of this mostly in his head, not even really scripted or put down. So The Birth of a Nation ran for three hours, which was the longest movie ever released to that point. Its sweeping battle recreations and large-scale action thrilled the audiences. There were all kinds of new and unique special effects, such as deep focus photography, jump cuts, and facial close-ups. The movie was a critical success, being described as art by lightning flash. President Woodrow Wilson saw the movie at a private screening at the White House and called it a, quote, sad, true portrayal of history. However, the movie is extremely and overtly racist, so Wilson's uh, proclamation is problematic. Um, the movie is, is very sympathetic to the Confederate cause, depicting the Northerners in the movie as brutal oppressors and destroyers of Southern life. African Americans in the second half of the movie, which dramatizes Reconstruction, portrayed by white actors in blackface, are shown as the root of all evil and unworthy of the freedom they received after the Civil War. Literally, like, I, sorry they are the scapegoats for it. Yeah, sorry if you ta already talked about this. Like, if you talk about this, but like, there's literally a scene where there's a bunch of black state congressmen. Yeah. In the like, just knocking back bottles of whiskey, and it's just like. Yeah, there's a lot of disturbing yeah. scenes. Yeah, Panastoria. I have watched this film. I'm a. I was in a his. I was. I'm a historian. I have watched it too. <laughs> I had we, a whole class on. We, yeah, we had to watch it in class. Yeah. So, anyways. During Reconstruction, freed black Americans, I'm just going to quickly refresh your memories. During Reconstruction, freed black Americans were pushing for their right to vote and gaining a lot of ground in public life in the American South. Whites in the South did not like that, and this led to the expansion of and support for the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. White Southerners in the movie are depicted as victims of oppression by the North, but also as victims of black advancement. The KKK are depicted as the protectors of white Southern society, being portrayed as the healing force to all of the chaos of Reconstruction. Civil rights activists and not horrible racists were incensed by the depictions of black people in the KKK as saviors, and a protest movement to stop the films showing in Los Angeles gained momentum. Protests accompanied the premiere, or the premiere in Los Angeles in February 1915, and it continued with the movie's opening in New York City the following month. But it was in Boston where the most intense opposition showed out. William Monroe Trotter, a civil rights leader and editor of the radical Boston weekly newspaper, The Guardian, teamed up with a local branch of the National Association for the Advance Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in a bid to ban the film. Throughout that spring, Trotter, a graduate of Harvard and its first black member of Phi Beta Kappa, was at the forefront of the protests. This included mass rallies at which thousands of demonstrators were confronted by a small army of Boston police. The demonstrations, sometimes turning violent, played out in very every venue imaginable. City Hall, the streets, the courts, and the Massachusetts State Legislature. The protests failed to stop the showing of the movie, but they succeeded in galvanizing the civil rights movement around Boston and the country. They also exposed in no uncertain terms the movie's bigoted treatment of historic events. So, it's definitely not a true showing of historical events at all, or even close, and so it makes Woodrow Wilson's depiction of it as a sad, true portrayal of history even just more ugh, ugh. The movie, pro the movie proved to be a great recruiting tool for the Ku Klux Klan, uh, obviously, which had practically disappeared by the 1870s with the end of Reconstruction. In December 1915, it was revived in Georgia following the opening of the movie in Atlanta. Inspired by the movie, Colonel William J. Simmons, a preacher and promoter of fraternal orders, led a cross burning on Stone Mountain that marked the beginning of a new era of KKK activity. Simmons advertised the Klan in Atlanta newspapers as, quote, the world's greatest secret social fraternal beneficiary order and a, quote, 
High-class order for men of intelligence and character. The new clan was floundering in its first several years, only attracting just a few thousand members by the spring of 1920, when Simmons hired Mary Elizabeth Tyler and Edward Young Clark as publicity agents and promoters for the group. This begins the uh, formation of the clan into a pyramid scheme. Uh, <laughs> basically. Franchise opportunities. Uh, Tyler rip, rip off money from racists. Basically just became a franchise, a franchisee-like organization. Um, Tyler Clark divided the entire country into what were essentially sales territories and sent more than a thousand solicitors into the field to recruit members whose $10 membership fee for the clan were sent in part to those solicitors as commission, but also as like money for coffers. This strategy was incredibly successful, swelling national membership of the clan to over 100,000 people within months. In 1921, a newspaper expose detailed more than 100 acts of Klan-sponsored vigilante violence, which pr promoted a congressional investigation. Or prompted, con prompted a congressional investigation, not promoted. The I guess it kind of works. The publicity only made the Klan stronger, and it claimed more than one million members by 1922. Yeah. Simmons <laughs> was eventually ousted as leader due to internal strife, being replaced by a Texas dentist named Hiram Evans. This was more organization, there was more organizational infighting and external opposition, but despite this, the Klan continued to grow. By 1925, the Klan had anywhere from two to five million members and the sympathy of millions more. Because this is the thing about the Klan. They're very good at disguising themselves, and they're very good at, while they might not actually attract you to be part of the part or be part of their group, you'll look the other way. So, they relied on that. The Klan drew historical inspiration from the Reconstruction era Southern past, as we mentioned, um, and it had its headquarters in the South. But white Americans from all over the United States flocked to the organization. Klan chapters could be found in cities, towns, and rural areas, but had strongholds not only in the former Confederate states, like Arkansas, Georgia, Alabama, and Texas, but also Indiana, Oregon, Kansas, Colorado, and Pennsylvania, Washington, and Ohio. The average members were neither wealthy and powerful nor impoverished and dispossessed. Mostly, they were just middle-class white American men and their families. They were small business owners and salesmen, ministers and professors, clerks and farmers, doctors and lawyers. Basically, the Klan seeped into every corner of white American life, which is the terrifying part. Their ideology was a blend of hateful things, merging xenophobia, religious prejudice, and white supremacy and with a broadly conservative moralism into one awful cocktail. While the aftermath of World War I helped lead to the rise of fascism in Europe, it also had a similar impact in the US. They felt the ma many of the same anxieties, but also worried about an influx of European immigrants who were communist, about the seemingly growing influence of Catholics and Jews in American life, and about the migration of African Americans from the South to the North. This was coupled with the expansion of political and sexual freedoms for women, and the perception that immor immorality, crime, and vice were all on the rise only confirmed for many that there was a sense that the world was spinning out of control. And I mean, like, when I say it's a similar aftermath um, in Europe, it's just like, there was a recession, there's a lot of people who are out of work, there's a lot of people who are damaged from the war who are coming home, and those situations are always chaotic and have a lot of anxiety, and people fear, they fear change, and like, fear things have clearly changed, and so they want what they had, and they want, you know, hearkening back to true values, and... Yeah, and in terms of like, the, that supposed sexualization yeah. thing, that's very true as well, because like, after the war, people are just like, you know what, fuck this, we almost died, yeah. we're gonna have some fun. There's exactly. a reason why the Roaring Twenties is called the Roaring Twenties. Exactly, and this happened like, and so it was very similar conditions for the KKK to rise as there was in Europe for fascism to, ri fascism to rise, right? Like it's just waiting for something to like soothe the fears of the people while also stoking them. Yeah. 
And Whenever then, there's economic hardship, one of the two extremists or both are going to start rising. Exactly. The Klan advocated for a restoration of, quote, true Americanism, which does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> <laughs> and offered members of a platform that demonized blacks, blacks, Catholics, Jews, Mexicans, Asians, and any other non-white ethnic immigrants while also condemning communism, most forms of leftist, leftist politics, and, quote, base cultural influences, such as alcohol, birth control, and the teaching of evolution in public schools. <laughs> they presented themselves in part as a Christian moral reform organization and in part as a vehicle for entrenching the economic and political power of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. The Klan flourished with the promise that energetic white nationalism and traditional morals would hold back the tides of modernity and ensure that the forces scheming to undermine the authority of native white, or native born, there's some irony there, white Americans <laughs> would be kept at bay because no white American is native born, especially at that time. <laughs> anyway, while there was violence, and a lot of it, the violence was not the main attraction for most of the members of the Klan, like I said. The Klan owed its popularity less to its endorsement of raw hatred directed towards non-whites and the supposedly immoral than to how it allowed for the expression of white supremacy and moral conservatism in culturally acceptable and even laudatory ways. The Klan gave its members the sense that they belonged to something special and larger, complete with secret rituals, handshakes, mystical-sounding titles like Imperial Wizard and Grand Cyclops and whatever the fuck, code words and... and there was code uniforms, words and uniforms, the hood and robe. They forgot. sponsored. Hmm? Sorry, you forgot Grand Dragon. Oh, yes. <laughs> the thing I learned about Grand Dragon, though, is that like David Duke pretty much just made that up. Did he really? Yeah. Ah, uh, fuck you, David. Also, another free shout out. Slow Burn, the newest episode, is all about David Duke's run in the Louisiana governor elections and super fucking interesting. Definitely listen to it. Anyways. <laughs> Again, in unsponsored ad reads. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. The KKK sponsored parades, picnics, baseball teams, and beautiful baby contests because this is the 1910s and 20s. Things were weird. Um, it had extensive women's auxiliaries and even a number of children's children's auxiliaries, which had had names like, and I shit you not, Junior Ku, Ku, Ku Klux Klan, Tri K Club, and my personal favorite, Ku Klux Kitties. Oh my fucking god! <sighs> Love it. Ugh, yeah. Robert Evans also talks about this stuff, and he talks about there was, like, clan camps, and, yeah. like, there was, like, summer camps for the kids, but there was, like, clan camps for, uh, like, adults, like, getaways and, like, resorts, and, ugh, ridiculous. At the clan cookout. Anyway. Oh, Bo Burnham. The most important thing to understand about the clan is that the ideology of intolerance and racist violence was inseparable from the forging of community, charity work, the pride, or the political activism. So the clan was actually like very, clan members were like very involved in charity work in their communities and their churches and whatever because they truly believed they were good upstanding citizens. And so for the most part, like, you can't separate those things though because they're obviously trying to invest in their community because they want their community to thrive. And then they're violent towards other people's communities. Yeah. So you can't really separate the things, but a lot of clan members tried. Even clan members who came to the organization mostly because of friends and neighbors um, they saw the appeal of white supremacy anyways, and they understand fully how the appearance of Klansmen and regalia struck fear into large numbers of their fellow Americans. So even while most people might not have been attracted to the violence, and that's not why they joined, they understood exactly how important it was. And it was the fear and like what they got out of it was appealing. And they could see how white supremacy, it was very clear to them how white supremacy would benefit them, and it was appealing nonetheless. And the fear of those Klansmen in robes was legitimate. And that fear was one of the things that actually helped bring the second Klan quote-unquote, down again. Both presidents, Harding and Coolidge, opposed the Klan, and a number of public officials and prominent citizens who had joined the Klan in the early 1920s 
started to turn against the clan as it became clear that they had not cast their lot with a salutary fraternal society, um, but had cast their lot with a conspiracy that countenanced sadists and fanatics. They were like, oh, this is not the thing we thought we'd joined, which, whatever, they left. I think it's important to note, though, that it was the violence that turned the people off of the clan, not so much the racism itself. The clan self imploded, but most important is the vision, is that the vision of America decaying never came to be. So it's important, like that was honestly as much of a factor in the clan disappearing as them just collapsing. Yeah. The recession after World War I eased eventually. The 1920s began to roar. And I mean, honestly, white native born Protestants remained largely in power in the United States, anyways, and so they didn't need the clan's help to hold it. <laughs> like, <laughs> America also did not need the Klan to be racist towards its own citizens. They were good at that themselves. To quote the Atlantic, quote, Still there was something especially disturbing about a United States in which bigotry's appeal had become so public and widespread that it could be taken for granted and where its purveyors could feel entirely comfortable expressing it through such seemingly virtuous activities. In a country that normalized the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan, it hardly mattered whether every white American felt the organization's allure. Sizable percentages, percentages of them probably wanted nothing to do directly with the Klan at all. But if they were not interested in watching the parade go by, they mostly just looked the other way. I, I just want to point something out. It is very hard not to call them cucks. It's like the Ku Klux so, Klan. Yeah. Like, and it's also hard to say Ku Klux rather than Klu Klux. I know, it's yeah. It's really hard. Not even the... I, I've seen enough clips from Jerry Springer. I don't watch Jerry Springer. Don't hate me. Um, but I've seen enough clips of them that know that that not even members of the clan got pronounced <laughs> properly. Yeah, it's clearly an organization started by a bunch of drunk frat boys in the in the eighteen hundreds. Like, hey, like it's obvious. Hey guys, you're racist. I'm racist. I got an idea. It's got this cool name. It, it rhymes. I like Ku Klux. What does it mean? I don't know. We're but, but we'll call ourselves a clan, and we'll spell with a K. Dude, that's genius. And there's some alliteration. So, like, so genius. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, yeah. So, a bunch of lunatics, but they weren't dumb. And they grew a lot. Like, as I mentioned, they had obviously extreme expansion. They had up to a million members at one point, which is awful. But, uh, like any good organization, they were more than happy to expand. So, the key to the growth of the clan was their sales strategy, really. Um, they became one of the most expansion, like the Klan became one of the world's most expansion-happy organizations. They were like the Starbucks of racism. Yeah, it's not something you expect to hear of a racist organization. It's the 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 main thing for their success was their sales. Yeah, yeah, no, they were like the Starbucks of racism. <laughs> like one on every corner, we're doing it. Um, anyway, <laughs> franchise opportunities, like yeah. I said. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so the point of this is the main point of the episode, which is the Klan came to Canada. The event that most likely served as the prime reason for that was that in 1922, the Canadian government chose not to extradite a black man named Matthew Bullock. Bullock was a black World War I veteran who had been accused, along with his brother, of inciting riots in North Carolina. Bullock and his brother had not been anywhere near the site, but he had argued with a white grocer over apples, like bad apples earlier, and so, you know, because he pissed off a white dude, he was... a the guy in charge of these riots, or quote-unquote riots. His brother was sentenced to time in prison, but was lynched by a mob beforehand. I'm pretty sure he was actually sentenced to life in prison. But anyways, he was lynched before he even got there. So Bullock, fearing the same fate, fled to Canada. 
Once it was made clear that he would die if he was sent back to the United States, the government chose not to extradite him despite his illegal entry into the country and various other things. But they were like, eh, well, we don't really want you to get, we know you're going to get lynched as soon as you cross the border, so like, fine. Anyway. We may be equally as racist. We may be but racist, but like, we have, our, we have our limits. We're at least, we'll let you we're stay. at least polite about it. Yeah. Kind of. Um, <laughs> the KKK obviously were not impressed about that, and they threatened to invade Canada. On March 18th, 1922, the Toronto Daily Star asked, quote, Are the streets of Toronto at the witching hour of midnight sometime within the next three weeks to resound to the clutter of horses' hooves to be fill and to be filled with the an eerie cavalcade of, a white of white-clad figures speeding forth upon a mission of retribution a la birth of a nation? The hooded figures never arrived on horseback, but they did have designs on getting into Canada anyway. Like I said, they were good salesmen. There was a reason for this also, um, not just, like, sales. Um, <laughs> not expanding for the sake of it necessarily, but Canada represented a vulnerability in their terror network because the refusal to extradite Bullock made Canada appear to them as an escape hatch, even though in reality Canada only ever took in one Jim Crow escapee, Bullock. But protectionist white supremacist, supremacist groups don't let facts get in the way of a good moral panic. So <laughs> the fact that it was only a perceived safe haven rather than a real one didn't really matter. <laughs> it is similar to the work of prohibitionists in Mexico and Quebec. What was the point of having a dry country when people can just hop over the border and get lit up for a weekend? So, nothing really happened until 1924, but then an official path for the Ku Klux Klan of Canada, with K, was drawn up by two American wizards and a Toronto resident, James L. Cowan, who set up an office in on Toronto Street. I actually legitimately wonder if they knew that Canada spelled with a K is like the indigenous word for Canada. Yeah, but it also has a T instead of a D, doesn't it? Yeah, but still. But still, yeah. <laughs> like, well, I don't know that it officially has one or the other because I think it's a transliteration. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Regardless, I wonder if they actually knew. <laughs> Probably. Do they, they don't seem like the kind of people... I'm guessing they didn't because, again, no. why let facts get in the way of a good little panic? Yeah, I don't want to give them any sort of... Neither, and I know they <laughs> wouldn't have ripped it from that either. Yeah. I'm just legitimately curious yeah, if they knew. But I'm just saying I don't want to give them the satisfaction of saying they knew. Because <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't. No, a bunch of, again, a bunch of losers. Has nothing to do with white people. I don't give a shit. Pretty much. So by 1926, a Barrie, Ontario newspaper reported that there were gatherings of hooded men all over Ontario, including Barrie, Sault Ste. Marie, Exeter, London, and St. Mary's. The Canada Clan, again with case. Ugh, love it. The Canada Clan. Ugh, funny succeeded in its expansion for the same reasons they succeeded in the United States. Canada has a long history of white supremacy, see also colonialism, which has deep roots, and combined with a strong anti-immigrant sentiment of the time, led to a fertile ground for the pointy-hooded racists and to spread their word. The biggest reason in the United States had been the advancement of black people, which led to backlash, and that is actually when the majority of Confederate statues in the United States were put up. Not actually during the Civil War or right after, it was, yeah, like a lot after. <laughs> Jim Crow laws were established, and the KKK's terror campaign ensured that systemic discrimination wouldn't be challenged. While the Canada clan branded themselves as a nicer, gentler band of racists, it was still, it was still responsible for violent acts of domestic terrorism, most frequently in attempts to burn down or blow up places of worship. Notable incidents happened in Quebec City. Um, for mm -hmm. any of our international listeners, Quebec is very Catholic. Anyways, Quebec City, Barrie, and Winnipeg were, there, uh, were ten, fa 10 fatalities. In Oakville, Ontario, a mob of 75 men in white pointy hoods burned a cross while parading through the town en route to their targeted victim, a white woman who was about to marry a black man. They were attempting to kidnap her in order to prevent the marriage, and this ended up not working, 
and the couple got married and lived happily ever after. So sometimes there are good endings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the United States does not have a monopoly on racism, and the expansion of the KKK into the country, coupled with the slow institution of systemic racial segregation into Canada, only proved that. So basically what happened is similar reasons why the KKK died in Canada as happened in the States is that Jim Crow laws in the United States started to come into place and very equally like discriminatory laws came into place in Canada or were already in place anyways because of colonialism. So it had the similar effect. White Canadians didn't really need the Klan to hold power. Yeah, but um, also like from what I understand is a lot of people actually didn't care. Yeah, mostly people were just indifferent and never yeah. had the same levels of... Uh, I mean, people cared a lot in some places, but anyway. Oh, yeah. The Klan saw a swell of expansion in Canada again in the 1970s with Grand Wizard, self-proclaimed Grand Wizard, <laughs> David Duke, telling a McLean's reporter in 1979 that Canadian membership had quadrupled over three years. Um, he was actually correct, and the KKK made serious inroads into Canada. And there was a Canadian Grand Wizard, James McWhorter, and he <laughs> opened an office in Toronto. I don't know, I'm guessing you talk about him more. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Eventually they were chased out, but... They were eventually chased out, obviously, but they were still there in the first place, which is problematic. Like I mentioned, anyways, the Klan had lots of presence in Ontario, um, but it was short-lived. Uh, violent, but short-lived. I mean, um, any place that's the largest, uh, like, population-wise, yeah. it's going to have the largest. Totally. Like, for and example, also Ontario's proximity to the United States. Yeah. Like, it literally is there. Like, it's yeah. so like, I mean, close. The largest Klan contingents in, like, the largest Klan population in United States is surprise, surprise, California, but that's yeah. because of the population. Yeah. Is but that's actually larger. not true in Canada because statistically, because Ontario didn't have a larger clan membership than Saskatchewan, but has a larger population. Right. So, but in the United okay. States, that yeah. is statistically true. But here yeah. it wasn't. It's just that, like, the most prolific place, more well, I guess I just spoiled it for myself. Again, while Ontario had its thing, the clan was much more popular out west. Alberta and British Columbia had strong followings. But it was in Saskatchewan where the White Hoods really flourished. Over the span of a few years, the Klan claimed 125 chapters and around 25,000 members by the end of the 1920s. Saskatchewan traditionally has a population of less than a million people, so 25,000 is huge. Um, it is one of the least populated, I think it is the least densely, or one of the least densely populated places on the planet. Like, Probably, yeah. I actually looked it up and it's like, um, each person has like 11 kilometers of space or some shit, like it's ridiculous. Like, the point is 25,000 people in a, pro in a population of like less than a million people is significant. So around 7,000 people attended the first Klan rally in Moose Jaw, stay classy, in 1927. According to press reports, a fiery cross of electric lights lit up Regina City Hall Auditorium for another gathering. And in the small town of Melfort, shout out to Melfort where my friend Brad lives. Hope you're listening, Brad. Um, north of Saskatoon, a crowd of an estimated five, between five and 10,000 people gathered and saying Maple Leaf forever and onward Christian soldiers while 20-foot crosses burned. Two 20-foot crosses burned. Oh, shit. Um, I sent this to my friend Brad. Shout out to Brad again. And uh, he said, uh, history, that happens every second Tuesday. Oh. Oh, so, you know. Anyway, the Klan targeted vulnerable minorities, including Catholics, French Canadians, and targeted a handful of, quote, foreigners entering the province. Saskatchewan has a really large population of French Canadians, and again, they're Catholic. <laughs> So, the leader of the Saskatchewan clan, J.H. Hawkins, raged against the, quote, permitting of any race of people to enter Canada that cannot be assimilated and become the heart, become heart and soul Canadians. Sound familiar to anybody? But, I, I, it's, it, that statement annoys me because it's just like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's like the same fucking, you could literally like put, insert conservative politician's name next to that quote and it would be like. Yeah. Yeah. It fits. Totally. So, 
the clan in Saskatchewan, so the clan in Saskatchewan was probably like the, it was by far the most successful version of the clan in Canada, but arguably one of the more successful versions, like period, in some senses, in terms of like the, so they actually, they reached a pretty significant level of political power, so. The clan in Saskatchewan and their message were endorsed by many local newspapers and Protestant clergymen, but they were also endorsed by the conservatives who were hungry for power in the province as the liberal party had been in power for a long fucking time. At the conservative party, um, so conservative members are also called Tories. I think we've talked about this before, but just to clarify. So at the conservative party convention in March, 1928, a large number of delegates there were Klansmen and they weren't shy about it either. Walter, T Walter D. Gowan, the Klan's treasurer, was a federal conservative MP from uh, Regina from 1917 until 1921, and for Long Lake from 1930 until 1955. He once proudly told federal conservative leader and prime minister of the time, R.B. Bennett, that every organizer in the Klan is a Tory. During an intense debate in the House of Commons, an angry liberal MP asked Gowan why he didn't wear his nightshirt, a.k.a. the hood, in the House of Commons. So, you know, they weren't shy about it. Um, without trying to hide the support from the Klan, the provincial governments went into the 1929 Saskatchewan elections campaigning against the French language and immigrants. Uh, they ended up toppling the liberal, liberal government who had governed for more than 20 years. Much like in the United States, the Klan eventually petered out in the prairies, though. It happened sooner because by the 1930s, the Klan was more or less done. But one reason for that is ultimately, like, the laws they really... The, the discriminatory things that they espoused became public policy so they didn't really need to exist anymore. But one prominent Saskatchewan clan leader, Hugh Emmons, stated with incredible candor, and I'll finish with this, quote, we fed people aunties. Whatever we found that, we could, be, that could be taught to hate and fear, we fed them. And, yeah, uh, that sounds about right. Yeah, so. The clan in Saskatchewan is, uh, I, there's definitely, I think, more information out there that's kind of brief, but. So one of the prominent Saskatchewan clansmen was named John James Maloney. And he did his best to kind of try and revive it. And he was also one of the main organizers when it originally started. The Alberta clan actually dates back to 1923, but it was poorly organized and lacked proper management. And by the end of the decade, it was in dire straits. Now, John James Maloney, who was one of the, as I mentioned, he was one of the main guys, main clansmen in Saskatchewan. He got really butthurt because he claimed that Premier Anderson had cast him aside for a cabinet position or a government, some sort of government position. Basically, at that point, the Saskatchewan Conservative government was like, well, we don't really need you anymore. We're, we've been elected. So, bye. So, now that the, the Saskatchewan clan was fizzling out or had fizzled, like pretty much fizzled out at this point. So, Maloney instead went and settled in Alberta. The Alberta clan actually may have died completely had Maloney not stepped up as Imperial Wizard. He invited more experienced clan organizers from Saskatchewan and British Columbia who helped restructure the Alberta clan into a more organized group. At this point in Alberta, the we've talked about these guys before, but the social credits mm. under Bible Bill, uh, William Aberhart, was uh, starting to come up in prominence and surprise surprise the bible bill was kind of a racist no shit yeah the social credits were getting a lot of popularity in calgary because it's fucking calgary uh so maloney instead went up north and attempted to set up political like establish himself politically in edmonton 
Maloney made up to five public engagements every single day throughout southern or throughout rural Alberta, recruiting members. However, he did face opposition and was met with angry crowds in Gibbons and Stony Plain. I like why you're trying to recruit people in Stony Plain is beyond me. For people who don't understand, Stony Plain is really it was and still is highly First Nations population. Not really your typical clan member. No. Even the like even the white people who lived in Stony Plain are like, the fuck is this? As well as having rocks Read th- the room. Yeah. <laughs> as well as having rocks thrown at him in Chauvin. And when he attempted to enter Wainwright, a mob prevented him from disembarking and he was forced to leave. So go Ray- Wainwright. That's actually kinda of surprising. Yeah, go Wainwright. <laughs> Membership did steadily grow, and their propaganda wing, known as the Liberator, claimed there was 250,000 members. However, it is likely the real number was much fewer. Like, much fewer. As far as I know, none of the other provinces had a membership larger than Saskatchewan's. During the 1931 Edmonton municipal elections, the Alberta clan actively campaigned for Dan Knott. Most communities in Alberta were vocally antagonistic towards the Klan, but not appeared to be tolerant to the organization. He even allowed the offices of the Liberator to operate within the city. Basically, like Lindsay said, there are a lot of people who did not hide their either support or membership of the Klan. Dan Knott did not really hide, like, do anything to distance himself from them at all. Like, he's yeah. kind of like, yeah, they're, they're okay. After Knott's victory in the mayoral election, the Klan burnt a cross on Connors Hill in celebration for the victory. So people in Edmonton who are listening to this and have gone picnicking on, or astral, <laughs> what is it, gallivanting on Connors Hill, just know that a massive cross was burnt on it for like by the Klan in celebration of Dan Knott's victory. <laughs> oh boy. As far as I know, there wasn't one ever burnt in Calgary because I can't couldn't find anything. I mean, I if anyone knows of what if any any clan cookouts happened, cookout with a K, of course, happened in Calgary, please send it in an article or something, and I will post it on the on the Panastoria page because I'm actually genuinely curious because I could not find anything. Not continued to allow the clan to organize within the city, granting permission for several members and pub- for several meetings and public events. He even was pictured in attendance of a clan convention in the Royal Legion's Memorial Hall. There, I've seen the picture. He's literally like front row center in a middle of a clan meeting. None of them are wearing clan outfits. I think there's a few of them wearing clan outfits, but most of them are just, you know ass white assholes in suits i mean i think you have to be more afraid of the white assholes in suits than the people in the hoods hey working at the liquor store when i did it was always the white assholes in suits i was more afraid of it's true so at least the pointy hoods you can tell who they are yeah, <laughs> yeah. despite his association with the clan that was no secret he was re-elected in 1939 but was defeated in 1941 afterwards he retired from public office and kind of faded off into obscurity much like the clan's about to do <laughs> Because not all, actually, it's interesting. They had fierce opposition in Alberta from a lot of people, including in Calgary and including from Bible Bill, which is interesting. 
Because like Bible Bill seems like the kind of people that the, he would like be fine with it. Well, that if would he didn't be, support I, it, he yeah, would at least he would turn be the other way. To it. White Protestant, yeah, like evangelical Christian. He didn't like the Klan, so credits where credits kind of do. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't like. I'm not Bill. gonna say credit, but I mean like. Okay, yeah, but okay. He, didn't, he didn't like the he didn't like the Klan. We'll give him that, I guess. Yeah, but he also didn't really vocally. He wasn't concerned with the Klan necessarily. That's part of the problem. Uh, the United Farmers, who was our government for a while, they're not. They don't exist. Well, they exist now, but they're a, um, a like literally a company that a farm sells company sells like fertilizer and equipment, farming equipment. Yeah, and, <laughs> they used to yeah. govern our province. <laughs> the United Farmers government of John Brownlee were highly opposed to the Klan, and Brownlee requested the Alberta police force actually actively monitor the group, which they did. This is the same government that brought in eugenics program that we mentioned in a in a previous episode. I know. However, the Alberta clan's downfall would be the result not of a mass uprest, a, ma- a massive police like raid against them, rally against racism, even though it actually kind of was. Credit where credits due, Alberta was not really keen on having the clan, especially because well they weren't necessarily keen because of their violent persona, I guess, or their like their um, perception of being violent like in the south or in the in the states but also they just generally didn't want a racist organization in their backyard so go alberta we may have shit on you so much it's our home province but go alberta (laughs) um it would be the result of a financial scandal Provincial officials found discrepancies over the organization's funds, with Maloney being suspected of embezzling the funds from the Klan. This caused a rift within the Alberta Klan itself, with people who were still supportive of Maloney and those against Maloney. Maloney was eventually arrested under charges of theft after he stole legal documents from a law firm who have actively opposed the Klan. He was convicted on January 25th, 1933, and was later convicted of insurance fraud related to the missing funds of the Klan that February and went to prison. With Maloney's reputation shattered and the end of his leadership role, the Klan basically fizzled out, like the rest of the clans that were in Canada. It's like the Soviet Union almost. It didn't die with a bang, necessarily. It fizzled out. I mean, that's, I mean, not that it really ended, but yeah. So like Lindsay mentioned, during the 1970s, Grand Wizard David Duke, who was, I think at one po- at that point, the most powerful Klansman, probably one of the most powerful racists yeah. in Amer- in that, during that time frame, claimed that in 1979, membership of the Klan in Canada had quadrupled over the last three years. Quadrupled is an uh, overstatement, but it did gain momentum in Canada again. In 1980, the Canadian KKK opened an office in the east end of Toronto where Grand Wizard James McQuinter operated. The opening sparked outrage throughout Toronto after claims of KKK recruitment operations in Ontario high schools. The Riverdale Action Committee Against Racism organized demonstrations outside the Toronto office, forcing them to pack up and move across the city. 
However, when they arrived at their new location, another organization known as the Parkdale Action Committee Against Racism were there to greet them. Not with open arms, but with fists. No matter where they went, would go, they would be, there would be people there to challenge him, and eventually they were forced to fizzle out again. So that time they fizzled out because of pretty prominent vocal anti-racist action. So go Toronto. In 1981, a group of Canadian and American members of the Klan and Associates began plotting a military takeover of the island country of Dominica in, over, in order to overthrow Prime Minister Eugenia Charles and reinstate white supremacist Patrick John as the premier. The plan was devised by Klansman Mike Perdue, who, was enlist, who enlisted the help of Canadian Grand Wizard James McQuinter and Canadian neo-Nazi Wolfgang Droge and American neo-Nazi Don Black, amongst many others. The plan was to charter a boat to Dominica and meet with John's personal army. The group would obtain weapons beforehand for the assault and bring them along. Initially, the plan was to invade Granada, but this was changed early on in the planning. In February, the boat captain got cold feet and backed out. Purdue approached another boat captain and Vietnam War veteran, Michael S. Howell. He claimed to Howell the CIA wanted to use his boat for a covert operation. Unconvinced and suspicious of Purdue, Howell immediately contacted the ATF after the meeting. John was arrested in Dominica after authorities were warned of the plot by, American, by the American authorities. Despite their plan uncovered, Purdue insisted they continue with the invasion. I can't tell you how bad an idea that is to keep going, even though your plan has been foiled. However, by this point, three undercover ATF agents had infiltrated the group. On April 27th, the group loaded their wep up their weapons and made their way to the marina in New Orleans. However, local police were there waiting for them and they were all arrested. Purdue and six others pled guilty and served three years in prison for the plot, which was in a violation of the Neutrality Act. McQuitter served two years and Droge served three. The media went with this plot and they nicknamed it the Bio of Pigs. <laughs> so that's how the Canadian KKK and the American KKK, along with some neo-Nazis, tried to invade Dom or plotted to invade Dominica. Hmm. Lovely. Yeah. In 1988, two members of the Canadian KKK uh, were convicted on ter terrorism charges after they plotted to bomb the Calgary Jewish Community Center. Interesting note, I lived like a block away from this community center. I'd been there many times. I mean, this is before I was born, obviously, but yeah. Leo Lachance was a member of the Big River First Nations in Saskatchewan who worked on a small scale, who worked as a small scale trapper and pelt seller. He was described as good nature and humorous, although had some, I, I guess, had trauma, which unfortunately doesn't surprise me that a First Nations person has trauma. Mm. It's a sad reality. Mm hmm. On January 28, 1991, he hitchhiked into Prince Albert in order to trade some pelts. However, when he arrived, his usual trader had closed for the day, so he decided to try the pawn shop next door. The pawn shop was owned by Carney Nurland, a self-professed white supremacist 
clansman, and leader of the Saskatchewan branch of the Church of Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nations. He was there having a couple drinks with, a, with some people. It is unknown what exactly happened inside the store, but Lachance eventually stumbled out of the store wounded and walked about a block before collapsing. A bystander attempted to call for help at Nerland's door, but was turned away and um, firmly told there was no phone on the premises. The bystander then rushed to an A&W where he called 911. Emergency personnel arrived and began to work. Officer Troy Cooper and his partner were fir the first arriving officers. They initially were unsure what happened to him, and they believed he was having some sort of... They, they weren't sure what was wrong. They thought he was having, I think, a heart attack. Once they removed his clothing, it was... By that point, they realized he had been shot because there was blood everywhere. Lachance tried to give details into the attack, but he was hurt badly and fading in and out of consciousness. And it was eventually decided he would need to be transported to Saskatoon for emergency surgery. Sadly, he passed away early the next morning from his wounds. Another unfortunate circumstance is Cooper was attempting to ask him what had happened and all and um, Lachance only said a white man did this. He also said that he believed he thought the gun went off accidentally. Mm. Nerland was quickly determined to be the suspect after a bullet hole was found in his door. He was arrested and sadly because of Lachance stating that he thought it was fired accidentally they could not charge him with murder and he was therefore charged with manslaughter. After being denied bail, Nerland pled guilty and was sentenced to four years. However, he only served three and then was placed in the witness protection program, where as far as we know, he might still be in it today. So, I this murder is still caused ripples and it's yeah. still a huge deal yeah. in Prince Albert. Prince Albert is very much the home of a lot of racism anyway. Mm. There's been some really bad incidents there. Non-clan related, but just general white people being shitty. Yeah. So the sentencing obviously, like, understandably sparked outrage in the First Nations community. And the Prince Albert Indian Métis Friendship Center, the Prince Albert Tribal Council, which is, just, which is now known as the Grand Council, and the FSIN demanded an inquiry be done. It was decided by the provincial government an inquiry would be conducted with Judge Ted Hughes' test with heading the inquiry. The findings of the inquiry were that intolerance was still widespread and recommended the stationing of at least one officer who spoke Cree at all times in the Prince Albert police, as well as have the province make improvements to officer and, and prosecutor training in dealing with racist matters. Basically sensitivity training. In 2001, the Prince Albert Provincial Court opened near where Lachance was shot. In front of the building, there's, there remains a, a statue of Lachance and in dedication to him with a plaque telling his story. More recently, in July 2016, this time in Chilliwack, B.C., residents were shocked when they woke one morning to find flyers with KKK propaganda in their mailboxes. In the following months, flyers were also distributed in Mission and Abbotsford, causing concern of a KKK presence secretly operating in the communities. Police investigated and determined the 
flyers were actually part of a recruitment drive in an attempt to boost numbers. It was also seen as a response of the, to the Black Lives Matter movement, the unrest in Ferguson the years prior, and the contentious U.S. presidential election. I, I managed to see, I, I found a photo of the flyer. It has, it's just a, like, it's literally, it's a shoddy job. Yeah, it's <laughs> Obviously. But it's just, there's a picture of a bunch of guys in robes, probably something they got, I'm certain they got it off, they just got it off Google Images. They didn't take it themselves, no. put it there, and it literally says, white lives matter. Um, protect the white race from what, and like, the guy who was being interviewed in, in the article was certain he got a flyer because his fiance was of Chinese descent. So today, nobody has been charged with the flyers, and literally, that's the only time in like in that area that it had happened. In 2019, a report called Extremism and Hate-Motivated Violence in Alberta listed the KKK as one of several hate groups active in Alberta. It, this was also the first major report into extremism in on a provincial level of any kind. And it was one of the first, it was also the first to name uh, like members of the far right, like far right groups. Like, like Pro Proud Boys, etc.? uh proud boys wasn't in there but there were those, like those groups those though. kinds of groups yeah. yeah um but yeah the kkk was in there because there is still a bit of a kkk presence in alberta because this past summer through word of mouth there was apparently a cross burning, cross burning in, red in red deer yeah i haven't been able to find any confirmation on it yeah but... i just saw some stuff on twitter about it but i can't say it was yeah reported clan it's reported clan activity i don't yeah. know for sure the most recent development I was able to find is on September 9th, 2020, the Edmonton Public School Board voted to rename two schools, Dan Knott and Frank Oliver, due to the former's association with the KKK and the latter's anti-non-white immigration views. So fuck you, Dan. Yeah, fuck you, Dan. That's the history of the Klan in Canada. Pete. People um, were asking a kinder, me. A kinder, gentler mob. Yeah, it's <laughs> a really. very Canadian way of the clan, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Still horrible human beings, obviously. They suck. Their ideology sucks. Yeah. It's poison. And uh, my, my friend Ian said, like, this is something he asked me. He's like, do you see the clan as a threat in Alberta today? And I'm going to answer it now. Um. I don't necessarily see the Klan. I see far-right ideologies in general as yeah. the biggest threat. Uh, but if you want me to narrow it down even more, I would say neo-Nazi groups. And at this point, uh, Wexit. At this point, the fucking government almost. Pretty much, yeah. Like, like I don't know. They're, they're pushing up against some pretty hateful... Some pretty dangerous and disgusting... Yeah. They're... they're while the speechwriter who just yeah. retired, quote unquote, was Ugh. anyway. Um, yeah, they seem petty. They seem like a petty enough group of people that we get emails. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so I, I definitely see like in terms of like actual groups similar to the, to the states. I would say the neo Nazis because I do still see them from time to time. Oh yeah, like uh, there's a lot of. Proud Boys-like organizations in Alberta and Canada in general that are definitely a very real threat. And so, like, 
the clan itself specifically might not really be a thing anymore and it might not really be a real threat it's the same ideas these organizations are basically just like all the same they all espouse the same shit their ma- their methods are like not even really that different they just wear different uniforms yeah well i like, mean it's like the point the point of all of these organizations is the same is that they all see themselves as something larger and something like important so it's like they, they're self-empowering on top of like just being a place where shitty people can yeah. well i mean the exist it, I, I mean, the clan and Daesh are one and the same, basically. Yeah. They're they're both run. They're both fueled by religious fundamentalism, extreme hatred. Uh, they've both committed horrific acts of terrorism mm-hmm. and murder. When I, and like people, say, oh, they're not the same. They're exactly the same. They've totally. done. They've done just as disgusting and brutal things. These organizations aren't any different than the clan. They just don't wear hoods. Yeah. Like. I mean, it's like you see... Honestly, and the biggest reason they wore hoods is because at the time, in most cases, obviously not in Canada, because (laughs) they got into power. But, like, the biggest reason people wore hoods is because it was... You didn't want to be known as a clan member. Like, you wanted to cover your face. Because... And that's why, like, the men... And that's why, like, the men in suits that aren't wearing hoods are actually the most dangerous. Because they're the ones who infiltrate society. And, like, you never know that they're even part of the clan. Yeah. And it's like... Now, they're just not even afraid to show their faces. They're just like, yeah. fuck it, whatever. Well, and like, it became well, it became essential at one point to cover their face because it was illegal yeah. to be a member of a clan. Exactly. I mean, it, the way uh, free speech here in Canada works is a lot different, and it's not as... You can't easily argue your way out of, out of something by claiming free speech because uh, hate speech is not protected by the constitution it specifically says it in there um neither is holocaust denial so there's a lot of people who've been like um who've been like well i was uh, using my right of free speech but the courts are just like yeah well it's like no because it's not protect like hate hate speech is an infringement of free speech yeah it's just like it's not it's not protected and i support that because i posted that one thing it was uh the intolerance paradox where you have to be intolerant of intolerance in order for tolerance to survive yeah exactly and on that note (laughs) crunch a nazi today do you have a interesting fact um oh damn it totally did i can i can do mine okay it's actually a recent art it's actually a recent uh news development the island country of Barbados announced they are transitioning to a republic, which means the Queen Elizabeth will no longer be the head of state, and they will no longer have a governor general. Hmm. And uh, I assume they're going to a presidential system, meaning that the governor general will be replaced with a elected president. And then the prime minister is going to say the same. But even the governor general of Barbados... Yeah said this is the the this is um right step for uh dismantling colonialism hmm. that's cool we've set our views on here we're both we're, we're fine with we we like queen elizabeth we, we don't like the crown yeah exactly <laughs> i think that's i i wish barbados luck because it's a big step they have to rewrite their constitution now yep which probably i i want to say probably I might might be safely saying, but I might also be kicking myself in the teeth. 
that it might it might be easier in Barbados than a lot of other places like Canada one can hope to reopen their constitution but considering the constitution still technically hasn't been ratified by every province yeah 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 but and then with but with Barbados like I don't know what their situation is but you don't hear much coming out of Barbados unless there's unfortunately unless there's a hurricane yeah, I mean, I guess that also could just be the bias of Western news media, too. I don't know. Possibly. But I, as far as I know, Barbados, like, from Seems what I've like heard... Seems like they're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, from what I've heard, Barbados is a beautiful country, nice place to visit. You can drive around the island in an hour. <laughs> but anyway, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's becoming... It's going to be the newest... It's going to be the first country since Mauritius to leave the... Not the Commonwealth, but leave that... Leave the the crown and become a republic because hmm. you can be a republic and still part of the commonwealth like india is still part of the yep. commonwealth and their republic there are places that weren't even british colonies that are part of the commonwealth yeah. so anyway it's just kind of like yeah come on in commonwealth's kind of useless <laughs> anyway that's yeah. my fact that was I once again still can't remember my fucking fact so we're just gonna move on okay <laughs> so uh i think we're gonna do another nonsense Next, we got a lot of things to kind of vent about, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but then after that, we're talking about uh, the history of comedy in Canada. Yeah, we figured we'd give some people something to laugh about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this point, just rambling. Uh, follow us on page or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We post stuff there a lot. And Twitter. And Twitter. Also. If you can, please support us on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Um, And share the podcast with your friends. The more subscribers we get, the better. So, And with that note, we're leaving you off with the Ramones. Uh, Literally, it took us about, it took us an hour of trying to think of what music we could use for this episode. Yeah. And this is, this is what we, this is where you, this is where we are. So anyway, thank you very much. This is Jonah. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Stay safe. Kevin says we And wash your hands. And wash your hands. Wear a mask. <laughs> she went away for the holidays. Says she's going to LA. But she never got.